just to make sure that some parents of little ones know, there is no Sprouts today, but um, it will be back next week. So if you thought, wait, I didn't see the, the slide up there. That's right, you didn't. Um, so we all get to sit here together this morning and jump into uh, our series into Genesis. Now there was, a, there was a time that I was talking with someone who was despairing of life and they were thinking of ways in which they felt that it was destroyed or they had destroyed it. And in that conversation with this person, um, they felt and they expressed that they felt that they were broken beyond any healing or any repair. Uh, they couldn't fix this. And in the midst of that conversation with them, I said something to the effect of, what did God have in order to create this world? And they said, Nothing. I said, right. And if God needs nothing in order to make all of this, then certainly he can take your brokenness and make something beautiful from that. See, I've had conversations with other people who have felt uh, similarly to that individual. And it seems as though we as human beings have this very nasty tendency to think that if things get too bad or if we have destroyed uh, things in our life, then not only is it our fault, but then God also is saying, you need to prove yourself and you need to fix yourself up and then maybe we'll be okay. Unless you fix yourself up, God's not going to listen. But that's, that's not God's will. God doesn't want us to prove ourselves to him. God delights in revealing himself to us and revealing how much we need him. Haven't we seen that in Genesis? That God, God delights and designs for us to stop our self-salvation projects and turn to him for salvation, restoration, healing, rescue. I mean, all the way back in Genesis 1 verse 2, we saw God is the God who brings order from chaos. And then it goes on, and we see that theme over and over, Adam and Eve's sin. But God then promises that there's going to be a seed of the woman, a, one who's going to crush the serpent. And then you get to Cain and Abel, and God proves that he's the God over the chaos. Lamech, the flood. God is a God who brings order from chaos. He's the miracle-working being, and he cares to bring people back to himself. And then we enter into Genesis chapter 10. And there's this genealogy of nations, if you were here for that. And, and what we saw in that genealogy was that God's not just over Israelites. He's not like the gods of other nations that just over their little nation. But God is a God over all the nations. And then what kind of shockingly happens is God's the God over all the nations. And what do the nations do? We're going to go out and make a name for, not God, for ourselves. 
The God who is the God over the nations and the nations reject him and spurn him and go out and build this tower to make a name for themselves. And in that story, you could kind of wonder, like, is, is the serpent winning? If God's the God of the nations, what's going on here? And yet then we see God confuse their languages, which is God revealing to them how much they need him. He's revealing their hearts by confusing the languages. And then we enter into chapter 11. Well, into chapter 11, and we get to a genealogy that Kaiki preached on last week. And, and, and whenever you see chaos, we should be thinking God is going to bring order. Do you get that? Whenever we see chaos, we say God's, gonna, God's at work here. And so we get into this genealogy and we should be thinking, okay, okay, God's working here. And, we, and, and, and as Kaiki brought out beautifully last week, that Sarai is this emphasis in this genealogy and go, okay, seed of the woman is coming. Woohoo! And Sarai's name and she's barren. Hard stop. That doesn't work. Wait a second. God, that's too broken. That, that, that's impossible. You can't bring a seed of a woman from a woman who can't conceive. Have you forgotten your promise, God? That's not very exciting. Seems like you're saying everything's over. But I loved how Kaiki brought out in the genealogy, and he, he asked us this question last week. Will we trust the God who brings order from chaos? If we do trust God the true God who brings order from chaos, then that means that precisely in moments like these, where life looks too broken, too chaotic, we don't turn to ourselves for the answers to fix it. That means that we actually recognize and realize it is too broken. I am too broken. But it's not about me. It's about him and his ability. It makes me think about the Apostle Paul when he talks about his own weaknesses and he gives us what our response ought to be in the midst of brokenness. But he, God said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more. Can you just say the next word with me? Gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am say that word content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. Whew. Paul says that because of God's grace, He's content. He's content with weaknesses. I'm not asking for a show of hands here, but how many of you are content with the weaknesses? He also says here that he will all the more gladly boast in God in the midst of weaknesses. Is that your natural propensity? No. In the flesh, it's not. 
our natural propensity to boast in them. But listen, if you have been melted by the grace of God and you know the glory of God, then you want God's glory to be seen all the more. And how is God's glory seen? When we say, I can't, but he can. I am not, but he's the I am. God's glory is put on display in this world when we are transparent and humble before him and transparent and humble before others because then that's when we see God who is at work, not just ourselves. When we say my life is too broken, it can't be fixed. That's precisely the moment when we can and ought to turn and say, but God can. And that's when his glory shines. And that's what we actually see in the narrative today with Abram. Is Abram going to listen to God? Or is he going to say, that's impossible? No way. I'm going to do my own thing. Is Abram going to boast in his weakness? Or trust? To put it another way, will Abram be like the people of Babel in trusting his own schemes for success? Or is he going to trust the God who's over the chaos? Now, by the way, this would be very important for the original audience reading this. Who's the original audience reading this letter? The Israelites. And they are doing what right now? Wandering in the wilderness. Okay, this is important for them. Because remember, as the original audience, they often didn't trust God, did they? During the plagues, they complained. They didn't trust after being rescued from Egypt, when they got to the Red Sea, did they say, oh, we've seen God work before. Surely we're going to get across this. Is that what they said? Absolutely not. He brought us out here to die. Uh, they complained when they didn't have meat to eat. And by the way, don't just look down on the Israelites because we are like them, right? I'm sure you can look at your life and see scenarios where you didn't trust the Lord. You were maneuvering and trying to figure out how to gain some kind of control for safety or whatever reasons. Israel needs to hear this message of Abram because as they're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, the promised land that's first mentioned in this text, as they're going to the promised land, God is putting them through difficulties that are intended to reveal their weaknesses. And those weaknesses should be a call for them to cling to the Lord. Will they boast in their weaknesses and trust the God who is over the chaos? Or will they doubt God and trust their own ways and embrace the ways of Babel? So with this kind of backdrop, I want to get to the main idea of the sermon this morning. God's word of blessing to broken people compels faith, obedience, and worship. I'm going to break this down and just take the first point. God's word of blessing to broken people. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This chapter starts off with what word? 
You can go ahead and say it out loud. Now. Now. Wins now. It actually, in the Hebrew, the idea is connecting to the previous chapter, chapter 11, Abram, his father, Terah, they're in the land of Haran. And now, now, it's, it's, it's kind of like in the midst of this. At some point in the midst of this, in Haran, God spoke to Abram. Now, this is a really intriguing in this text, just kind of give you a little bit of a insight into this. But there are some connections with Genesis chapter 1. And one of the connections with Genesis chapter 1 is how God speaks. And we actually hear no words from Abram in this text. And it should be reminiscent that, and it should be shocking even, as we've been reading all these stories. Uh, but, it, but it should be reminiscent of, of Genesis chapter 1. And when God spoke, well, when God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. We don't hear the light saying, whoa, 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 I've never existed before. Can you give me a little bit of time? Right? It's like, let there be light, <laughs> there's light. And let there be the, the, the sun to exist. And the sun doesn't go, man, I don't want to light that planet. That's a tiny one in the midst of this whole galaxy. Come on. It actually does it. And what you actually find in this text of Genesis 12, God speaks, Abram does. It's like Genesis 1. And that's shocking because... There have been a lot of disobedience and a lot of people that are not listening to God's word. But Abram is listening to God's word and, and responding. When God speaks, Abram does. And Abram here not only is showing similarities with Genesis 1, but he's serving as a contrast with Babel and all the nations who is rejecting God. So Moses is writing here to reveal something amazing. We might be tempted to think that God isn't powerful over the serpent, but we see here that God is so gloriously powerful. God is so gloriously powerful that when his word really sinks into the heart of someone, they will respond. That's the miracle that's here in this text, a miracle of grace. Now, by the way, some people look at this text and they'll say, this is a conditional covenant. If you go to the country I tell you, then I will do this. But look even in your English translations. Do you see words if or then in there? It doesn't exist. And actually, in the Hebrew, the command is stated as having gone. Having gone to the land that I will show you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God knows he assumes because he knows that Abram's going to go. This is going to happen. So God says, this is going to happen, and then this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. It's not conditional. It's not dependent on Abram. It's all dependent on God. God's grace is so amazing that Abram accepts and responds and obeys the word of the Lord. And so we see the power of God's summoning grace. And by the way, God doesn't reach out to Abram because Abram's so great of a person. This is all mercy that God is showing because, because God has been revealing himself in Genesis as the God of the nations who desires and designs to bless people. He longs to bless people. And Abram is existing in a pagan land. 
and God plucks Abram from a pagan land. It's not that Abram, you know, loved the Lord. God loves to show his glory to people so that they can be set free. And God sets Abram free, not just for Abram's sake, but for the nation's sake. God designs to bless. How do we know that? Well, when you look at the statements of the promises of God here in this text, there's seven. And actually, what we've talked about before, there are certain numbers in the Hebrew that matter. Seven is one of them. Seven indicates perfection, and there's seven promises that God gives here in this text, which is indicating that this is like the promise of promises. Which, by the way, I cannot emphasize how important these verses are to the whole narrative of Genesis and also the narrative of redemptive history. This is promise of promises that's coming out here to Abram. Abram becomes the father of Israel. Abram becomes the ancestor of all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And again, it's not because Abram's so great. He's from the pagan land. He's part of an idol-worshiping world. And in the midst of this rebellious world, God plucks Abram out. And this reveals how great our God is. Amen? Amen. Then we read of the sevenfold promises. Now he says, he commands Abram to leave Haran and go to the country God's going to show him. And so here, go, I will show you this land. And here are the promises. God will show Abram the land. God will make him a great nation. God will bless and make his name great. Abram will be a blessing. God will bless those who bless Abram and God will curse those who curse him. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. That's a tremendous blessing because Babel thought that they could make of themselves a great nation. They sought a land for themselves apart from God. They sought to emphasize themselves apart from God, yet God scattered them, revealing to them, you cannot have eternal blessing apart from God. Do you know that? Do you know that? In God is eternal blessing because God is the blessing. We sung about it earlier. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's the blessed one. And we receive blessings from him. And now God is giving himself to Abram and promising a land, a nation, and all the families of the earth being blessed. Know this about God. Know this about God. God seeks to bless the world. This is God's promise. So I have a question for you. If God makes a promise, will he keep the promise? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Pastor Timothy, for sure. You know, and it's true. He does. We struggle with that when the rubber meets the road, don't we? And, and here in this text, the rubber is meeting the road with Abram. We know that God is the God over the chaos. We recognize that God is worthy to be trusted when things don't make sense. But when it really comes to action time, do we believe? And this is what we see with Abram. God's word of blessing to broken people compels obedience. Let's read verses 4 through 6. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So Abram went. Abram goes. He, he leaves as the Lord has told him. And, and don't miss the shocking faith of Abram here that he's exhibiting. He's leaving an area that he's used to. He's leaving an area that they have settled in. I don't know about you, but if I'm planning a trip, the first thing I want to know is the destination. You get that? I mean, if it's like, kids, we're going on a vacation. Where are we going? I don't know. We're driving. And dad's crazy. He's lost his mind. You know, it's, it's, it's always, we're going here. And maybe on our way to here, we're going to stop here. 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 What does God say to Abram? Just having gone to the land that I will show you. Can you like tell me now? Nope. Like, where are our stops? I'll tell you when you get there. Can you tell me anything? You have me. He is with Abram. He is the guide. So Abram went. He trusted the Lord. And by the way, the author of Hebrews speaks of this act of faith and says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So he didn't know where he was going. He listened to the Lord, believed the Lord, trusted God. Now, at this point, some some of you Bible scholars might be thinking, wait a second, wait a second. Hebrews 11 seems to indicate that Abram had saving faith here in chapter 12, but it's not until chapter 15 that we're told that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. I thought Abraham wasn't saved until chapter 15. Hmm. You know, it's very interesting. We Western readers of the scriptures, we often want to read, and we do read this way, in a timeline. So... This happened, then this, then this, then this. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before in your reading of the scriptures, but sometimes in the reading of the scriptures, you go, wait a second, this happened. I thought this happened before that thing. And this happened, wait, wait, where's the timeline? Because in the ancient East, they wrote in order to emphasize principles. Now, there's a lot of times there's order in time frames, But Moses is teaching the people certain principles at certain points in time. It's not to say that Abraham was justified in chapter 15, but not in chapter 12. He's just showing what comes along with faith. Okay? And so what we have here is, and and Hebrews 11 really helps us to understand, Abraham exercised faith right here in chapter 12, a faith that pleases the Lord, a faith that says, I'm too broken, My wife is broken. There's no way I can save myself. There's no way I can bring a nation. And by the way, that's part of the emphasis too here in this text because there's, it's not only Sarai is, can't conceive. What does the text say about Abram here? And Abram was 75 years old. That doesn't give him a lot of time. 
to make a nation, right? If we're using worldly metrics, Abram is not a likely candidate for the nation, right? But if we know that God is the God who brings order from chaos, then Abram and Sarah are perfect candidates. This is great because God is overall. So Abram went. And then we read that Sarai goes with him. His nephew Lot goes with him. Their possessions go with them. And then they enter into another pagan land. Wait a second. I thought you were going to show me this land. There's problems here too. The, the, the phrase Oak of Mora is probably mentioned to emphasize the idol worship here. But what we see is that God enlivened a pagan, Abram, and is taking Abram to a pagan land. And from that pagan land, God is going to create a nation that will glory in God and go out to bless the entire world. This is, this is where I'm going to bless, and this is the land, and from this land, all the nations are going to be blessed. Hmm, wow, wow, you've got a 75-year-old whose wife has never been able to conceive, and we're in a pagan land. This looks great. And yet Abraham trusts. I think we actually see that even more when you look at this phrase. I, 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 did you notice there was one thing I didn't mention that Abram brings with him? If you look down in the text, the people that they had acquired in Haran. What does that mean? Was Abraham a slave owner? Are these servants? What is this? Actually, I agree with some other commentators uh, who say that the verbiage really does not allow us to believe that these are slaves or servants. The words that are used here in the text actually seem to emphasize that these are people whom Abram essentially evangelized. That he told these people, this is what God promised. This is what he said. And these people joined in. And they went in on the journey with Abram. That's fascinating to me. God had promised, God had promised people who bless you, I will bless. Abram tells people, and some people are believing the Lord's promise of this land, of this nation, to make a home that's greater than what human beings tried to create in Babel. So Abram went. God spoke, Abram went. And I want to emphasize that point that Abraham obeyed immediately. Has God's glory melted your heart and compelled your obedience? When you hear God speak, do you trust him or do you just generally resist him? When you know God is calling you to do something, do you say, I'm only going to do it if it makes complete sense to me? And I've got all my ducks in a row. I know that there's more, uh, there's more nuance to that in our lives, right? That, that God can tell us something, and I've had it many times. God tells me something, and I wrestle with him for a while. Yet at the same time, my question is, do you realize that disobedience is Babel-like? And that God and his promises are worthy of your immediate obedience? Do you know that? Immediate. I'm reminded of Jesus' example prayer to the disciples. He said, your will be done, finish it. What? On earth 
Mm -hmm. And what some people do is they interpret that as, may your will be done on earth. That's not what this, that's not what Jesus said. Your will be done on earth as, like or as, it is done in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Whenever we read about heaven and when God makes a command to the angels, what do they do? They go. And when we read in Revelation about the saints who are, who are in heaven, when, when God's glory appears, what do they do? They worship immediately. May your will be done like it is done in heaven, with immediacy, with passion, with zeal for God's glory. As followers of Jesus, that's how we ought to pray. God, may I do your will immediately. How do we do that? How can we do that? It's only through faith. Look at verses 7 and 8. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Where is faith? The, the word faith is not there, but the phrase called upon the name of the Lord is. And when you study the phrase called upon the name of the Lord throughout the scriptures, you find that faith is the heart that undergirds this. That's made explicit in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in chapter 10, and that's a quotation from the Old Testament, and chapter 10 is talking about faith and how faith compels us to call out to God for salvation, not to look inward to ourselves. Abram calls out to the Lord. He believes the promise of God to Abram's offspring. God will give this land. Now, the question is, who's, David's, or who's Abram's offspring and what is this land that he's talking about? Now, clearly, God is speaking of future Israelites, and he is speaking of the land of Canaan. But did you know that Abram did not only interpret these words that way? Abram didn't limit these words just to the land of Canaan. Because as we go to Hebrews 11 again, we see, for he, Abram, was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. There's something greater than just a land in a fallen world with a bunch of sin. There's something greater that God is promising here. Abram believed that. Now, sometimes I think that we look back to the saints in Genesis, and, and we, we I, I'm putting myself in this too, we can tend to think their faith was so primitive and in one sense, yes, they, they, they didn't know all the things that we know in the scripture, yet they did know more than I think we often want to give credit to. Like God could not have possibly taught them these things. I mean, I think about Job. And did you know Job was actually more than likely a contemporary, same period of time as Abram? 
and Job in the midst of his suffering. This is encouraged and surprised me when I get to this point as Job is talking and he says, for I know that my redeemer lives. Wait, okay, Job knows he needs redemption, but he also knows there is a redeemer. There is a serpent crusher. I know he lives, let's see here, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. He's not on the earth right now. But I know he's going to be on the earth. And then he says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed. What's he talking about? After I've died. After I've died, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Wait a second. How do you get flesh after your flesh is destroyed? Well, Job is talking about a resurrection. Job is talking about a, a day where everything will be set free. He's looking forward to that day when his Redeemer stands on the earth and he stands with him in the flesh. There is resurrection that Job is talking about. See, Abram seems to believe similarly. Abram didn't just believe that the promise of God applied to what he could see in the physical land of Canaan. He believed God's promise was bigger, broader, more vast. It was beyond what he could ask or think. God's sevenfold promise has eternal ramifications. And as a result... He trusted. Doesn't make sense. I trust you. Because it's not about this, my strength that's going to make this happen. It's about your strength. Is God strong enough? And then as a result, he ends up worshiping. In two different places, Abram erects altars of worship to the Lord. In the midst of the pagan world, he worships the Lord. And his worship happens when he's journeying. He doesn't, he doesn't see the fulfillment of the promises. But even though he doesn't see the fulfillment of the promises, God is worthy of worship. God is worthy to be adored. So Abram is sojourning, he worships the Lord. And this is a really powerful message for the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. By the way, the cities that are mentioned here that Abraham goes through are the same cities Israel goes through in the opposite order. In addition, by the way, Exodus tells us that there were people who joined the Israelites when they went out. So there's, some, there's these similarities with Abram and the Israelites. And what Moses is showing them, what God is showing the Israelites is, just as Abram trusted, obeyed, and worshiped the Lord in his sojourning, so you too, Israel, worship the Lord in your sojourning. Don't fall to the gods of the other nations. Just as Abram didn't experience the fullness of the blessings, and the Israel is not experiencing the fullness of the blessings, they're not seeing, they're not in the promised land yet. But they can still worship the Lord. They too ought to worship the Lord with hearts of faith. Will they hear? Will they believe? And then I think about us here this morning. As I think about Abram's call and God's promise to Abram, I can't help but think about the beauty of Jesus being the fulfillment of all of this. This is one of the, the funnest things about my study in Genesis, is seeing how Genesis points always to Jesus Christ. How does this story show Christ. You know, we're told in Philippians 2 
that Jesus left the glories of heaven. As Abram was called, leave, leave your father's land, Jesus left the father's glory and came to this earth into a pagan world. And then in Galatians 3.16, we're actually explicitly told by the Apostle Paul that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God gives to Abram here. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Why is that important to know? It's because God was ultimately speaking of the serpent crusher when talking to Abraham. God is going to give Israel, or God is going to give Jesus the land. And when Jesus, by the way, when Jesus left the father and came to the pagan land of Canaan, Canaan was essentially like the rest of the world. Matthew especially brings out in his writing that Israel was not really yearning for the Messiah. They were doing the same things as the world did. And yet Jesus came anyway, leaving the father's throne and coming into this earth. He humbled himself and he loved people. And when I say he loved people, he loved the nations. Again, Matthew significantly emphasizes that Jesus loved the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people of the Roman world. Jesus reveals the promise to Abram that through the offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And then as Jesus is walking and talking and ministering, and he's calling disciples to himself, he calls disciples with the same kind of call that God tells Abram. Unless you leave your father, mother, brother, sister, unless you hate even your own life, you can't be my disciples. Leave it all to follow me. But how and why would people trust Jesus? Why would they follow him to this degree? Well, Philippians 2 goes on. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you remember what God says to Abram? He says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will, what? Curse. Mm. Later on in the scriptures, we read, curse is the one who hangs on a tree. And then Jesus leaves the Father's glory, comes, loves the nations, and on the cross is being killed by the nations. And yet on the cross, Jesus doesn't say, Father, curse them. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is how the nations are blessed. Jesus took sinful humanity's curse on himself so that anyone who trusts like Abraham did, will be blessed in Jesus. Have you trusted Christ? I know even as I say that, some people say, well, I trust him, but it's not that strong. It's really interesting how we go 
to that so quickly because we think that if my trust isn't strong enough, then God won't accept me. But then we're going back to ourselves, right? It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong the object of your faith is. Get that? It's not how strong you are. It's how strong is Jesus. Do you realize your need for his saving? Will you boast in your weakness? Will you trust the God who brings order from chaos? If so, if so, then there's one more piece I want to add here. If you know Jesus like Abraham, then tell others about Jesus. People who profess faith in Jesus Christ, people who don't know Jesus Christ, tell others. God says that once the offspring has the land, from that land, blessing is going to go out into the entire world. And isn't that what happened to some degree after Jesus' resurrection? What does Jesus say after he resurrects and has his disciples with him? He says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'm going to stop there because go in the Greek can be translated the same way that the Hebrew was translated for Abram to go. Having gone. It's the same call. It's the same call. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. New creation has begun. And now he says, having gone, go. And don't just stay in this land. Get out. Go into the whole world. Because the whole world can be blessed in me. And for the last 2,000 years, the message of Jesus has been going around the globe. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we are going to meet them someday. And so we look at this story of Abram and see how Jesus is the offspring. Through Jesus, all the people of the earth, all people groups will experience the blessedness of God. And we have the privilege to share Jesus with others, to urge people to know the glory of God so that in whatever they do, whether they eat or drink, they can glorify God now. And that now in our sojournings, and we're sojourning still too, because I think the fullness of this promise has not yet happened. There is a day, there is a day of a new heaven and a new earth that Jesus delivers the kingdom over to the Father. And in that day, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more shame, nothing but perfection and glory and majesty, and we will obey on this earth like it is in heaven because heaven has come to earth with us. Whew. Like Abram, we yearn, if you're a believer in Christ, we yearn for the city whose builder and maker is God. And so again, what we see here is that God's word of blessing compels faith, obedience, and worship. Have you forgotten his beautiful word and glory? I ask that because maybe for some of you, you used to say, I know God commands this, and I'm just going to try harder to do it. No, you know what I think you ought to do is you ought to be praying and saying, Lord, I'm missing you. I'm missing you. I need you to awaken my soul. And then I'll obey. Because if I really know you, then my heart will be compelled. What are you trusting in? What are you obeying? Where's your worship? Come to 
Christ or come back to Christ today and find healing and restoration and then share this news with others, we have been blessed to bless because of Christ. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.